Good morning, everyone. How are we doing? We all right? Wow, that was quite a powerful video, wasn't it? Um, just shows the need for uh, what a broken world we live in and that the world needs Jesus. Yeah, we're going to be returning to our Luke series again today. Uh, just a quick recap. Who was here last week? Who heard Jeeves? Um, who remembers the cow? Yes. Uh, well, there will be slightly less humour this week. Um, but Jeeves was reflecting on uh, the disciples arguing about who was the greatest and Jesus talking about the need for humility uh, to enter the kingdom and to receive children and arguing about, uh, you know, if, any, if he's not against us, he's for us. And he talked a lot about the humour as well in, in Scripture, which was very humorous. Um, however, we're going to take a slightly different tone today. Um, now, we are, we're going to suffer a bit together today. Um, so Jeeves gets the, you know, the, the, the verses last week where he can joke about it. Uh, this week, we can talk about suffering. And next week, I get to talk about judgment. So I've got the great <laughs> verses. So I'm really looking forward to the next two weeks. Um, but it's important what we're reading today. Um, we are coming, you'll be, you may be relieved to hear, coming to the end of chapter 9. Uh, we've been in it uh, for a little while now. Um, but what we're reading today sets the tone for the rest of the book of Luke. So these are important words, what we are reading today. Um, some of these words will be hard to swallow but what we need to remember, what we're about to read, are the very words of God. So let's just take a moment to pray and ask him to speak to us through these words of his that we're about to read. Lord, will you come again, Holy Spirit. Thank you for being with us in our worship. Come and meet with us. Lord, will you come and speak to us? This morning, come and speak to us through your word. This is, these are your words this morning, Lord. Have our hearts open, Lord. This is, I'm speaking for myself as well, Lord. Will you come and speak to me as well? Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, so we're going from chapter 9, from verse 51, and we're going to go right through to 62. Um, and what we're reading sets us out uh, into a large section of Luke now uh, of Jesus teaching and speaking in parables. So between kind of uh, the, this section here right through to um, chapter 19, there's a large section of teaching and parables um, and slightly less miracles. There was a larger percentage of miracles in the first nine chapters, and there's going to be a slightly less percentage of miracles in the next uh, lot of chapters. So, uh, let's read from verse 51. So, it says this, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face, that's Jesus, he set his face to go to Jerusalem and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people 
did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? He turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. I told you it would be fun this morning, didn't I? But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plough and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Wow. That is huge what we've read. This is a key narrative of what we're reading this morning, of teaching over the next nine chapters. Sorry, And right off the bat, verse 51 is huge. It says, the days drew near for him to be taken up. It's talking about the cross. And it says, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. To set one's face is an Old Testament expression. It's talking about to resolve, to determine. Just a couple of examples. In Genesis 31, Jacob set his face to go to Gilead. In Jeremiah, Jeremiah, God was setting his face against the city of Jerusalem. And there are lots of other examples in the Old Testament. Everything from here on in has the cross looming in the background. This is what he came for. Everything from here on in is in the shadow of the cross as Jesus moves towards Jerusalem. If this was a film, it would be like the tension music would be starting to build as Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem. Feel the tension as we read this this morning because Jesus is moving towards Jerusalem. He's moving towards Jerusalem. In Luke 13, 22, it says, Jesus went through the towns and villages teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. In 1928, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Chapter 19, 44, as he approached Jerusalem, he wept over it. He's moving towards Jerusalem. He's moving towards the cross. And what follows on from this first section from verse 57, it's looking at the cost of following Christ, but not as a miracle worker, as an amazing teacher or healer, but following Jesus on the way to the cross, on the way to his death and resurrection because he has set his face to go to Jerusalem. We see in 52, verse 52, he sent messengers ahead into the Samaritan village. Villages. Now, Samaritans were despised by Jews. 
To Jews, they were traitors, they were half-breeds, they were intermarried with pagan nations, and they were seen as unfaithful to the nation of Israel. But Jesus is reaching out. He is extending his ministry. But he and the disciples get rejected. And Luke clearly states here as well that that was because his face, again, it states it twice, his face was set towards Jerusalem. The Jews would often, if they were going on a journey and a Samaritan village was on the journey, they would often go the longer route round to avoid the Samaritan village. Rather than pass through it, because when they did pass through it, they were often harassed. See, Samaritans thought they had the place of worship. It wasn't Jerusalem. We see that in John when Jesus has the exchange with the Samaritan woman at the well. She talks about where is the place of worship. See, the Samaritans, they, they, their kind of word stops at the Pentateuch, but they don't have all these kings. So it's not surprising that they don't welcome a rabbi on his way to Jerusalem. And verse 54, James and John don't like this. They don't like the rejection. They are not happy about this. To understand a bit about James and John, if we go back to Mark uh, chapter 3, what does Jesus call them? Sons of thunder. That's not a great nickname, is it? Sons of thunder. Sounds like an 80s rock band. The sons of thunder. And they demand judgment on this rejection. Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Whoa, steady on, sons of thunder. It's possible they will have had Elijah in mind. Not my son, Elijah, who's taking notes this morning. Well done, Elijah. (coughs) Elijah in 2 Kings 1 called down fire from heaven that consumed two companies of 50 men from King Isaiah. Jesus rebukes them. Luke doesn't tell us what uh, Jesus says, but it's clear that judgment for now in this moment is out of character with Jesus' current ministry. There will be warnings of judgment to come. And, as I said, I will talk about judgment next week. I'm sure you'll all be here to hear that. But judgment is not for now, in this moment. God graciously gives people time to reflect on their decision. Have you made a decision about Jesus yet? Jesus and his disciples' call is to continue to offer this message of Christ. It's a message of grace, but the decision that they make here and that you make today has ultimate consequences. It's a message that requires a decision, acceptance or rejection. And we see wonderfully the uh, Jeeves' expression. Wonderfully, we see this, the expansion of this message in Luke Park 2 in the book of Acts. This message is accepted in Samaria in Acts 8. But we learn that even Jesus was rejected. And we, the church, must deal with the world's rejection. What the disciples don't see or realize is that when they get to Jerusalem, at the crunch moment, they all reject Jesus. They all flee from him. Peter even does it with curses. Should Jesus kill the Samaritans? 
Should he kill the disciples for the same sins? But Jesus is indeed arriving in Jerusalem and will die instead of the Samaritans and will die instead of the disciples and everything, everything gets turned on its head. When he gets to Jerusalem, eventually the crowds call out, crucify him, crucify him. Should he call down fire on them? When he's hanging on the cross, they're mocking him. Should he call down fire on them? But it was my sin that held him there. Should he call down fire on me too? On one level, maybe, yeah, the answer to all of those questions is yes, he should. On me, on the disciples, on the Samaritans for rejecting the God incarnate. But Jesus won't let that happen. Why? Because he has resolved, he has set his face to go to Jerusalem, to die on the cross for those very people who reject him. So consider this seriously. Accept him or reject him. I do not believe there is a middle ground. Moving on to verse 57. Let's read these again. It says, As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I'll follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one puts his hand to the plough and looks back. is fit for the kingdom of God. Let's read those verses with the fact in mind that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. At first appearance here, Jesus is rubbish at PR, at public relations. He's got two people here that come to him and say they'll follow him. And one, he says to them, follow me. Two people say, I'll follow you. Great! I say, let's baptise them and get their testimony. But Jesus, of course, is trying to get to the heart. Jesus is trying to sift through. Jesus, as always, is on another level. The heading in your Bibles... um, will probably say something like the cost of following Jesus or the cost of discipleship. But what we mustn't do when we read these verses is narrow it down to changing our behaviour or who we spend our time with or what we do with our time. The, the first exchange, verse 57, says, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus' response is, well, foxes and birds have it better. Oh, okay. So when we come to Jesus, at first we think, great, he saved me. Ah, then he wants to change me from the inside out. He's challenging me about my attitudes. He's asking me to focus on the arrival of his kingdom and his good news to reach all people. He says, he has nowhere to lay his head. He is a sojourner in a foreign land. Rejection will come and finding a home will be difficult. That's what Jesus is saying. 
Can I just say, as I'm saying this, I'm speaking to myself as well. That is why in the West we are in danger of making ourselves too comfortable. That we're not ready to sacrifice everything for him. To follow him wherever he leads us. Because we are too comfortable. It is why the prosperity gospel is so wrong. Because it talks about making yourself comfortable now. And we have to be careful because we, <clears throat> we live in a time now where everything is so accessible. We can listen to any Christian teacher all over the world. And there are some obvious ones out there that may be prosperity gospel. But prosperity theology can slip in in other ways other than just making yourself wealthy. It can be that your life will improve or that something better is round the corner. It's beyond just wealth. It's that you, this is about you and you now and that if you follow Jesus, you'll be blessed now. So we have to just, when we listen to things and watch things, have our heads screwed on and really pray and think about what we're listening to and watching. I think if it excludes or there is an absence of suffering in what you're listening to or what teaching you're listening to, we should probably think about it. What Jesus is doing here is preparing any would-be followers for difficulty. I, I, just, I wonder if I can or we can be too affected by our Western culture and think oh, it's only the missionaries, the extreme ones who live life on the edge, the ones who embrace suffering. If we're honest, in the flesh, we all want comfort, don't we? We would love it if we could just pray and all of our friends just knock on the door and ask to be saved. Wouldn't that be jolly? That would be jolly lovely, wouldn't it? None of us want to be rejected. None of us want to lose our friends. None of us want that to happen when we've spoken about Jesus when we share the gospel. But how many of us think, actually, if we were rejected or if we were spat in the face because we spoke about the gospel, we think that would be great because we've suffered for him. That's difficult because to even think about because we're affected by our culture. But if we go back to scripture, if we look at the early church, what was their main focus in life? It was to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. It was a people that were dedicated, dedicated, dedicated to each other, dedicated to prayer, and dedicated to the gospel. They were a people who embraced suffering. In Acts 5, the apostles were going around preaching, performing miracles, and they get arrested. And then, let's read what it says. It says, they had been caught... And when they had called in the apostles, this is the uh, Jerusalem council, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonour for the name. And every day in the temple from house to house they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ Christ is Jesus. Wow. 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 Don't say his name. Don't preach his name. They were beaten. 
They were persecuted and they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were worthy to suffer for his name. They embraced suffering for the glory of Christ. What happened when the disciples, the apostles, embraced suffering? They were unstoppable. They went from this small band of ragtag believers to a worldwide global belief where billions of people believe today. What will happen to us if we embrace suffering? What can people do to us if we're not afraid? Peter said, who, who rejected Jesus, came back to him. He says later on when he wrote in 1 Peter, don't be surprised if something, as if something strange is happening to you in terms of persecution. He says rejoice. Jesus said earlier in Luke 6, 22 to 23, people will hate you, they'll exclude you, but, verse 23, rejoice! Rejoice! Now, I've, recently, Alpha has started, and stuff started happening to some of the team. And I, I just started to think in this different mindset, thinking, Lord... This is painful, but I'm going to rejoice because the enemy hates what's happening. So I feel persecution is coming from different ways. I'm saying rejoice. We mustn't get too comfortable. Don't get too attached. You are not in your permanent home right now. You know, we've lived in our current house for two years now. And people ask us, are we happy in our house? And more and more, I have been feeling uncomfortable with that question. Something is happening in me because God has done something in us. Because I'm becoming unattached to my house. God did something in us when he moved us from Bury St. Edmunds to Suffolk. Now, I've told a bit of this story before. A house in Bury St. Edmunds. Um, we completely renovated. We doubled the size of it with extensions front and back. I knew where every pipe, wire, screw, nail, everything was in this house. And that's not far from the truth. I knew where everything was. Blood, sweat and tears went into this house. And we loved it. We loved this house. And then God called us here. And we've been, we have loved the call but there's been pain in it as well. And one day we went back to sort out the house before we finally sold it, went to empty the loft for like the 17th time. And, um, and Gemma was out running and she said, she remembers praying and she was running and she said to God, why is this so painful? And God said to her, because you've given your heart to a place rather than me. Wow. And that hit us both like a ton of bricks, to be honest. God has done something in us. <clears throat> so we are very, very, very grateful for the house that we've got now. It, is been a real, it has been a supernatural provision of God. But we're using it to further the kingdom, not so we can make ourselves cosy and comfy. It's a very nice house. If you've been there, 
I'm sure you'll agree, but it, it's there to further the kingdom. Lastly on this, probably, Paul says in Philippians on suffering, I think I've got this up here. <clears throat> he says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Again, in Philippians 4, he says, I've learned that in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And we don't often read that last bit in that context of suffering. We read, I can do all things through him who strengthens me in a kind of Superman type way that I can do anything through him who strengthens me. Now this is, he has learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need through him who has strengthened him. Will you let him strengthen you? Will you let him come to you and strengthen your inner being? I realise there is pain in life. I'm not talking about being stoic and having a stiff upper lip here. I'm talking about let him sustain you. Come to him. How, how would we feel if God called us to a way of life or work that would mean lower income, less prospects, humanly speaking, uncertain standards of living. Suppose he asks us to do something for him, which, according to most people of our class, our background, our surroundings, is simply not done. How would you react? Well, let's go back to our verses to see how someone reacts. In verse 59, Jesus calls, follow me. The guy's response, uh, let me just go and bury my father. Well, that's fair enough, isn't it? Don't you think? That's, that's, that's a fair request. Jesus goes all hardcore. Leave the dead to bury their own dead. Whoa, steady on, Jesus. As for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, firstly... Jesus isn't encouraging neglect. He clearly upholds honouring one's parents and he's not encouraging us to leave dead people on the street. You can breathe. Sigh of relief. To this, this to us on the surface might seem like a reasonable request from the man, but I think what is helpful to understand is that it is unlikely that someone with a deceased father recently would be wandering around the town. First of all, he would be ceremonially unclean. If his father had died, he would have been buried probably very quickly. Uh, we see an example of that with Lazarus when he died. Uh, Jesus got there within a few days. He was already in the tomb. There was also, this was at a time as well. There was a year-long period where the person was buried, and a year later, the bones were placed in a box. So there was a year-long period 
placed in a box called an ossuary or ossuary box. But what Jesus is saying here is about priorities. It's about commitment. But what he says to this man and the next in verse 61 to 62, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. He's saying here, we, mustn't follow, we, must, we must follow him wholeheartedly or not at all. This is not a part-time job. It's like I, if I were to uh, knock on Karamia's door and she says, Ian Lettington, great to see you. And she says, Ian, come in, Lettington, stay out. <laughs> that would be weird. It's like asking Jesus as saviour to come in, but not Lord. Do you understand what I'm trying to say there? We must, if we accept the cross, we must accept the crown. If we accept him as saviour, we must accept him as Lord over our life. We can say, Jesus, save me, do this for me, but don't be absolute master of my life. Saviour in, Lord, stay out. That's, what, that's the equivalent of that. We mustn't make excuses. That's what Jesus is trying to get to the heart of here. There is no better time to serve God wholeheartedly than right now. There will always be something. Always something in life. Well, I've just got to, you know, I've got my studies, I've got exams coming up, I need to work really hard at that. Oh, and well, now I've got this job and I need to just really concentrate on, you know, making a good impression. And, oh, well, now I've got this relationship and I've met this person and, well, now we're getting married and we just want to focus on, you know, the first year of our marriage and so. And, uh, well, now we've had a little baby and we want to concentrate on little goo-goo. Um, but, and, <laughs> and then they become kids and then... <clears throat> Uh, Herman and I could tell you about this. It's consuming when they're little kids. Um, and then they'll, then they'll go to college. And, well, we just want to, you know, get them into college and we just want to concentrate on that. And then they'll get married and then they'll have grandkids and you've got to look after them. And then you're dead. <laughs> there is no better time to serve God wholeheartedly than right now. There will always be something. Always, always, always. What have you got for me now? The time is now. Ask him, what have you got for me now? What do you want me to do now, Lord? We mustn't put conditions on our obedience either. I'll do this if you do that. That's not how it works. This is a call to surrender. It's a call to die. To put something <clears throat> other than ourselves, our own needs. This is counterculture to Western way of living. Excuse me. We live in a culture, in a society that tells us we have a right to fulfill our own needs and desires. And if we cannot do that, we are oppressed. We are only free if we can fulfill our own needs and desires. And how dare anyone tell me otherwise? How dare anyone tell me I should sacrifice my life, my time or my desires for the sake of something else? This is the difference between the modern mind and the ancient mind. 
This is where modern, the modern mind and culture has a head-on collision with Jesus and Christianity. Because commitment and wholehearted obedience is a, voluntarily, a voluntary limiting of your choices and you eliminate other options. Commitment and wholehearted obedience is a voluntary limiting of your choices and you eliminate other options. And this attitude can even slip into the church because we can think about our calling as, an, as if it's an individual thing. Yeah. It's not. Any calling on your life is always, always within the context of the church. Always. You're committed. You sell everything you have to buy the field because that's where the treasure is. Yeah? Amen? You don't look back at what you've got because in reality, compared to what you receive, it is nothing. It is nothing. We mustn't look back. Last verse, no one who puts his hand to the plough and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. To follow the master, you need to keep your eyes fixed on him. In agriculture, ploughing straight in, in, in the old days, um, you would have to have your eyes fixed straight ahead on the horizon to keep a straight furrow. As soon as you take your eyes off, you start to veer off. It's like, have you ever been in a car when someone's not concentrating on the road? And they're talking like that, and then you're like, oh my goodness, it's so scary. <clears throat> that, that's what it's like. I have never been in a car like that with anyone. Uh, it's, it's easy to veer off course when you take your eye off the master. This is a warning. This is a warning to stay the course. Israel, after the Exodus, they looked back. Oh, well, at least we had food in Egypt. Uh, Jeeves referenced last week, Lot's wife looked back as they were leaving Sodom. In trying to preserve her life, she became a preservative. Jeeves thought that was hilarious last week. <laughs> Can I tell you, turning into a pillar of salt would not be funny for you. <clears throat> as soon as we take our eyes off Jesus, we can veer off. This kingdom work is not another add-on to your list of priorities. This is not another add-on to your family career, even our kids or their education. We can slip into speaking about things like we need backup or security, just in case. Every other commitment is secondary to kingdom commitment, to God. Jesus is sifting here. He's seeking true followers. He's not after gathering a crowd. He'd rather have a small band of dedicated followers than a large congregation. Jesus is after complete, commit, complete commitment, not westernized, comfortable Christianity. Followers that will go, move, speak, surrender whenever he says so. We mustn't bend scripture to suit our own comforts or to ease our conscience. Jesus is warning us here against indecisive discipleship. You can't plough a straight furrow whilst looking behind you. 
Looking back is looking at family, career, comfort. If you're looking back, it means that you're really questioning whether he's worth following at all. But if you want to display the glory of Christ, it requires having your eyes fixed on him. Dedication, commitment. The task ahead, the cost of following Jesus is glorious because he's worthy. If we think that Jesus is the son of God, he's died for our sins, but he isn't the center of our life, then we may think we understand, but we really don't. This is Jesus who holds the whole universe together with the word of his power. And this is someone that we can ask into our life as our assistant. This is someone who we ask onto a committee and ask his opinion occasionally. This is Jesus. See who he is. He is Lord. He is Lord. If you don't see him as Lord, it is spiritual deadness. See him for who he is. What does Jesus want you to give? He wants you to give in. That's what he wants. Follow him. He is worthy. He's worthy of following to Jerusalem, even to the cross, even to the nations. Follow him. Follow him to Jerusalem where he'll die. He'll die for us. He gave himself for us. If you're here this morning and you don't know him, he died for you so you could know God. You could be in a relationship with God and it is the best thing that will ever happen to you. And he won't promise you a great life here, but he'll promise you eternal life. When he says, follow me, it's not because he needs our help. but because you will be saved and you'll be given a mission that is more precious than family commitments. He gives us a task. He says, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God in Christ Jesus. It's a hard walk, but it's worth it. It's because it's a walk with God and it's more precious than gold. Can we stand? Why don't we just close our eyes for a moment and just focus on him. Lord Jesus, will you come again and meet with us? We thank you that you you went to Jerusalem. You set your face. You were determined. You were resolute to go to Jerusalem, to hang on the cross for all of us, for all our sins, so that we could be free. And then it doesn't end there, but you call us into your kingdom. You say, go and proclaim. We get to be part of this worldwide mission. Thank you, Lord. Holy Spirit, will you come again and meet with us? So let's feel the Lord would ask us this morning. What are you fearful of giving up? Are you afraid for the future of your family? What is he calling you to today? And what is he calling you to to surrender? Just have a moment. Ask the Holy Spirit to come and speak. Come and speak, Lord.
Come. Come and speak to us, Lord. We want to be obedient to you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you that you do. You call us into your mission. Lord Jesus, help us. Help us be followers of you. We want to follow you, Lord. We realize that stuff gets in the way. Lord, help us surrender everything to you so we can go and proclaim the kingdom. And we can see this town, this nation exist for the glory of God. Help us in our lives, Lord, our personal lives. Lord, follow you. Holy Spirit, we just want to commit ourselves again to you. Come, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.